0: The Many Things Podcast. Okay, hello and welcome to the Many Things Podcast. And today we're joined by a special guest. We're joined by Marsha. How are you?
1: Hello, hi. Great, thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: No, no worries. Thanks for joining, actually. So why don't you tell the listeners like a little bit about uh, what you're doing at the minute?
1: Mm -hmm. So I am a psychologist um, and behavioral scientist. I'm a researcher working at the University of Bath And I am most of the way through my PhD at the moment, where I look at how we can use exercise to stop people from getting depressed. And I'm also looking at how mindfulness meditation might help us actually be able to do
0: that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Okay, so are you doing and conducting a study at the moment?
1: So a PhD is almost like a a succession of studies. Um, My PhD has got big studies in them. I've already run three and I've got one in the works at the moment that I'm not yet recruiting for but I'm prepping for it and I'll be running it um, this autumn and early in 2024.
0: Okay, so are you happy to like run through some of your studies and your findings if that's okay?
1: Yes, of course. So um, my background from kind of going back to undergrad is in psychology and sport and exercise science i did that in exeter and it was almost like a combined course where we really looked at how the mind and the body work together and that's something that i've always been interested in so i've kind of followed that through to the masters that i did in health psychology and now my phd is kind of along those same lines of how do mind and body connect and interact and how we can use that to be the healthiest and happiest we can be. So the structure of my PhD was basically I am creating an online a digital intervention. Um, it will be predominantly a mindfulness-based intervention that will help people get into exercising and then also the second part will support them with staying more active. So to begin that whole process my first study was essentially just looking at all of the literature we've got available so far and um looking at what interventions or what kind of programs have looked at combining exercising and mindfulness because that that's what i'm looking at that combination so i basically screened thousands and thousands of papers to look at what's been done what can exercising and mindfulness do for mental health um, and then kind of condensed all of that to say right That's the lay of the land. That's what people have done so far. That was my first study. Then I moved on to a second study where I was like, okay, so I know that these things can be effective, but there's not a whole lot out there that currently combines exercising and mindfulness. Um, So I moved on to doing some interviews. I did an interview study where I spoke to a bunch of people about have they ever done anything along the lines of mindfulness and exercise have they combined them have just they just done them separately and if they were to do them would that even be a good idea what kind of ways we could introduce that what format they'd want that in so a lot of kind of we'd call that a needs assessment
0: mm-hmm. so so when you for people that don't know when you're referring to mindfulness is this predominantly mm-hmm. meditation
1: yes so mind mindfulness can be called a number of different things. Sometimes it's referred to as mindfulness meditation, mindfulness training. Um, But in essence, it all refers to a practice that teaches you to be more aware, more present of what you're thinking about, what you're feeling, what you're doing, and then also tries to teach you to be more accepting towards it. So yeah, those two elements, acceptance and awareness are kind of central to mindfulness and it will often take the form of um, what we call meditation so that can be you know being sat down um, having your eyes closed but it really doesn't have to be that way and that's part of what my research is doing.
0: Mm. I was listening to a podcast the other day and they were saying there's uh, like internal and sort of more external uh, type focus meditation and one of the external ones you just kind of stare into the distance have you come <laughs> across this?
1: Yes so If you're referring to, um, if we're both thinking about the same thing, that I think is called uh, meta meditation or open awareness, where you're essentially trying to just take in everything that's going on around you, whether that's, you know, what you can see, where you can feel, what you can hear, even where you can taste what your body's doing, and essentially just like sit and exist within that awareness. And that can be—that's one of the almost types of mindfulness meditation people can do.
0: Mm. So, has, has your has your studies, uh, has your research, sorry, been focusing on like a wide scope of different forms of meditation?
1: So, most of the research, um, not just my own, but most of the research generally in on mindfulness tends to use a few key techniques. Um, and that would mostly be things like focused attention. So, for example, focusing on your breathing. Then there'll be things like body scans, where you just essentially scan down your body. You meditate yourself, so you'll know what those are. Um, but those tend to be the key ones, whereas the open awareness and meta meditations tend to be slightly more advanced. So while some interventions that you use them definitely have have got those elements. I would say not everyone does. So in the intervention I'm creating, there are elements of open awareness, but the majority are still those, those key ones that are more beginner friendly, things like focused attention and body scans.
0: Yeah, I was going to say that makes more sense because I think the like I do like a form of breathing based meditation mm-hmm. where I'll only go for maybe five minutes, but I focus on the gap between my inhale and my exhale and just yeah. try and do slow controlled breath. Whereas I've tried the, um, the, the, the staring, the looking one, the yeah. external ones before, and I found it pretty tricky. Um, it's know. difficult,
1: isn't it? I mean, we get distracted so quickly anyway. I've been doing mindfulness for years and I still very much get distracted even with just kind of seated practice you know eyes closed just trying to focus on the breath like you've just said I still get distracted very regularly and that's normal Um, so the meta one is essentially gives you even more that you have to learn to just exist with rather than kind of be distracted by all of it and I think that's probably why it feels more difficult.
0: Mm-hmm. so how many minutes are you meditating for when you when you meditate
1: it will depend on the day but most days I'll probably do about 10 minutes sometimes 15 there's also days when I only do five um it I'm really just trying to keep a consistent habit and I think that's probably what matters most in trying to when you, when you try and get any sort of benefits from it
0: yeah for sure uh, the consistency is really important i mean i find it a little bit frustrating on the small amount compared compared to you that i have researched this it's just how how beneficial it can be you know i just got like a list of a few health benefits it can mm-hmm. improve focus uh, help people with adhd uh, sleep improvement moods even memory
1: mm-hmm. and
0: Yeah, yet it kind of doesn't really get discussed about as much as it should. I think everyone knows that exercise is pretty good for you, but Mm -hmm. I don't think many people are aware of how good for you meditation can be.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I think that there is so much science out there saying that mindfulness and other forms of meditation can be really, really great for all of the things you've just talked about, for things like, you know, treating depression, preventing depression, relapse. Treating anxiety, stress, preventing burnout—I mean, all sorts really—that mindfulness is shown to be really great for. Um, but it's actually used very little in terms of kind of being clinically prescribed for things. And yeah, like you said, even in things like the media or the way people talk about or whether they even think of it as an option, as a tool for feeling better, better and happier, um, it's not really used that much. I suspect. That could partially be down to the word mindfulness itself being mm-hmm. it almost comes with a stereotype of
0: mm-hmm.
1: who would be the kind of person that would practice it and I think most often for people the kind of person that comes to mind is probably a young woman wearing you know leggings and mm-hmm then she goes off for I don't know brunch <laughs> so it's that kind of it
0: yeah.
1: needs to be I, a very rigid idea of who might be able to benefit from it and it leaves out a massive chunk of people who actually might benefit and I think for, men are a big part here.
0: Yeah for sure I mean the stereotype thing people associated with like you know kind of hippies that, mm-hmm. that that love peace vibe whereas actually <laughs> it has Everyone can benefit from it, but I think we are starting to see that maybe not so much in the UK, but in like sort of Silicon Valley in the US and stuff. The sort of cor- corporate yeah. culture is uh, starting to adopt it more, uh, mm-hmm. for sure. So, so you mentioned men. So, has your research showed that like men practice meditation less on average?
1: I've definitely come across yes in in my research and also in the research of others. There is more resistance when you suggest meditation to men for example um because that maybe they can't see themselves practicing that or none of their mates are doing it have done it and maybe they just wouldn't they just don't really know where to begin so I think there's a lot that we can do about how we talk about things like meditation and whether or not we kind of Describe a kind of person that would be able to benefit from them, or actually, we talk about them as something that anyone can benefit from. Because, as you said, there's a lot of work and a lot of people, and increasingly, people are coming out to say, Actually, this has really helped me. So, there are some really, really useful um, resources out there things like, you know, 10% Happier, things like Headspace, Calm, all of these kind of apps that people have made, um, and also a lot of kind of quite well known, you know, prominent people that said I only can do as much as I do or I'm only as happy and healthy because I I do mindfulness or do meditation I think changes happening in this space but it's still quite slow
0: Mm -hmm. Um, I want to talk about a little bit about the actual physiological effects it has on us and Mm -hmm. on our brain Mm -hmm. um, if that's okay so it affects the prefrontal cortex right
1: Yes, that is one of the main changes we see, so the prefrontal cortex is the kind of front part of your brain um, that is mostly responsible for things like what we call higher order functions, so things like self-awareness, things like forward planning, um, reflection, all of those kind of higher order things, and what we see is in people who practice mindfulness a lot, we see that actually their volume of the prefrontal cortex um, increases a little bit so there's very tangible evidence for how meditation can change your brain and what that means in practice those changes is we when practicing meditation we tend to be able to better focus our attention and better regulate our emotion those are the kind of two main things that we see.
0: Mm. So when they're noticing the change in the prefrontal cortex, is this the change in blood flow through MRI scans?
1: So, yeah, fMRI, functional (laughs) magnetic resonance imaging, is the really kind of big round scanner where they put you in essentially like a really quite a narrow tube. And then they um, basically see how much blood each part of your brain is using at any one time and yes that we see increased activation and also sometimes increased volume and that that is what then results in those changes I just mentioned like you know better able to regulate emotion and attention and stuff like that.
0: Mm -hmm. And so do you know somebody that is suffering from pretty severe um, depression and anxiety how is their sort of prefrontal cortex operating differently is it overactive?
1: So, I'm, I'm not a neuroscientist, so I w- and I haven't done any work like that, so I can't say with certainty what kind of changes we are seeing, but oftentimes what we'll see is different patterns of activation. Um, so, for example, if you take a person with depression and a person that does not have depression, and you show them both the same stimulus, for example, picture that you could interpret as sad the depressed person is more likely to respond to it and see it as sad because they essentially they are biased towards they pay more attention to negative things whereas someone without depression their brain works in a way that doesn't prioritize negative things and that's kind of some of the differences we can see but I'm not entirely sure if it's kind of just the reduced blood flow in the prefrontal cortex that we'd see in someone that's depressed. I suspect it's more complex than that.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, so uh, g- looping back to your to your own research a little bit, like I'm sure you've reviewed like probably thousands of studies. Is there a- any particular themes that, that you're aware of that you think perhaps the public aren't aware of on this topic? Hmm.
1: That's a really good question. Let me have a think. I mean, I think... There's something that the part that I am personally really fascinated with Mm -hmm. is how mindfulness not only helps mental health and well being, but it can actually also help things like focus, productivity, things like how we engage in other behaviors, and how by practicing mindfulness we can generally get healthier. So, something that um, I think is super interesting is. People who practice mindfulness and people that kind of generally have like a baseline, higher baseline mindfulness, if you will, tend to also be healthier as a whole. So they tend to exercise more, eat more healthily, sleep more, have better sleep hygiene, all of those things. And in part, we think that that could be because they think about what they do and why they do it differently. So for example, if we take someone who is just trying to get get into exercise, but we all know it's hard to get, you know, exercising regularly, especially if you've not done it for a while. There's so many psychological hurdles that you have to jump over. So things like, you know, what if I fail? What if I just can't be bothered today? All of those things that mindfulness can actually help with. So one of the things that I'm personally really keen to research further is how we can use mindfulness not just in the clinical context of let's use mindfulness to treat depression or prevent depression from reoccurring but how do we maybe use mindfulness to help people be healthier in other ways so that's that's a space i'm really excited about
0: yeah for sure i mean on that point Mm -hmm. humans like we are creatures of habit and you know we have our routines Hence, there's the uh, that you know you've got to do something for 21 days to force yeah. it to become a habit, and I think that's where the meditation, in terms of the the, the ability for it to affect the neuroplasticity of the brain, mm-hmm. isn't that doesn't that mean that it's easier for us to shift out of these type of habits?
1: Yes, yes. So, I mean, anything you do, you'll have to do for a little bit for it to have effects, or almost anything, and mindfulness is no exception. If anything. With things like meditation and mindfulness, the longer you do it, the more effects you see and the more potent, stronger those effects are. Um so I'd definitely say, you know you do need a little while, and oftentimes the first you know first t- kind of section of time you do it tends to be the hardest because it feels like you're most out of your depth, or you know you just don't know what you're doing, you think you're doing it wrong, but actually over time, you realise that there's almost there's no right or wrong way of doing it. You just have to keep showing up.
0: Yeah, for sure, for sure. I found that personally, that the more yeah. I've done it, the easier it gets. Um, is it alright if we move on to talking about sort of mental health and antidepressants? Mm-hmm, absolutely because uh, well I' start with a personal anecdote I suppose so this is way back um, when I was doing my undergraduate okay. in uh, 2019 mm-hmm. I basically I was you know I was diagnosed as having you know depression I, mm-hmm. I went through a really pretty dark phase I think I was just drinking too much and just you know terrible diet a combination of all sorts you know sort okay. of classic university student not looking mm-hmm. after their health very much so so when I went to a doctor you know, they almost sort of immediately suggested, uh, oh, you need to be put on antidepressants, you know, SSRIs. And, you know, they, they gave me these antidepressants. I think it was really and I was on. But even yeah. then, I was kind of shocked that they, they never once, uh, this GP never once questioned, you know, my diet, whether I am exercising, any of these mm-hmm. other factors. It was sort of like their immediate go to. And I yeah. feel like this is something that you can kind of resonate with in terms of like our culture.
1: Yeah, I mean. The culture of kind of the West and, you know, countries like the UK is very much. Or has been um, the last few decades, very much almost dependent on antidepressants and antidepressants have been the go to for anyone that presents with anything that could be depression. Um, So I looked up some stats before we started this. Um, The UK has prescribed about 86 million antidepressants just in 2022 alone so that's and there's something about a quarter of the UK adult population are currently on medication for either depression anxiety sleep pain like some of the like a lot of the kind of the disorders in the in the mental you know psychological conditions if you will Um, and that that is ridiculously high just remarkably high and actually the stats and the science behind antidepressants doesn't always, is, isn't is the most rigid. Now, mm-hmm. just as a caveat here, I think antidepressants absolutely have their place, they're often very useful, sometimes they are downright necessary, they work pretty well for some people, so I definitely am not saying we shouldn't have them anymore, but I do think we as a country, as a as a system, could rethink their role and maybe see and consider some alternatives like exercise, like diet, particularly as first line of of treatment or as uh, as a preventative strategy for people that maybe don't have kind of full blown depression yet. I think the science in that space, for example, for exercise, um, is strong enough that we could at least think about that before we just send someone
0: home with an antidepressant for sure for sure jade can you share screen we found the stats i think it's eight million people in the uk are currently on antidepressants
1: Mm.
0: it's a lot isn't it it's which is it's kind of crazy yeah here we go the number of adults in england taking antidepressants has grown by half a million in the past year nhs Mm -hmm. data shows from 2021 to 22 the number of adults receiving the drug rose from 7.9 million to 8.3 yeah. million. And I think it's, it's heavily slanted towards uh woman as well.
1: <clears throat> so, I mean, yeah, we know that in general, um, women experience stress related or mood related conditions, um, at roughly twice the rate of men. And that can be down to a number of things. It's somewhat unclear what exactly, um, is the reason there, but Part of it, actually, is also that healthcare professionals, like doctors, treat women's complaints differently from men's, and oftentimes, there have been studies on this, women and men presenting with the same kind of symptom, for example, pain or not being able to sleep well, women will, statistically speaking, be more likely to be prescribed antidepressants or anti-anxiety medication, Um, so there is that kind of inherent bias in the system as well but of course that's not to say that you know women can't get depressed or that they don't get depressed.
0: Mm. Some of it's got to be biology as well right?
1: I mean possibly again there's so many different factors that all all pile onto each other there that, that it's really hard and then there's the whole debate about our current healthcare system is so overburdened if you're a doctor who has i don't know something about an average of four minutes to see a patient it's much easier to prescribe an antidepressant if you think that could possibly be relevant for that patient rather than talk about okay what exercise do you currently do what exercise do you like doing have you thought about doing this let's get you onto an exercise program there's just not oftentimes there isn't the time or space in the current healthcare System for us to even consider some of those alternatives. So time and time again, doctors will just kind of come back to the go-to, which is antidepressant.
0: Yeah, for sure, for sure. I mean, I think the problem I have with them, for sure, some people that have serious mental health, you know, they're too depressed or too anxious, they they, they can't operate without these pills. Um, but just there's just the problem I have with it is. The human brain is literally, I think, it's the most complex living organism you know ever discovered, right? And then uh, w- you know we're just giving these daily th- these daily tablets that affect the uh, th- the chemicals within our brains. And I yeah. think recently th- recently they they came out saying that you know we know that antidepressants work, but we're not sure specifically how ha- quite how they target the brain. So I feel like yeah. you just you're, you're you're kind of Uh, but playing with fire a little bit but also a problem I have is that I so back in that time I I took antidepressants for like Mm -hmm. a few months and then I took myself off them I weaned myself off them and Mm -hmm. even though the doctors were like definitely don't do it like I had a rough couple months after this but I was just trying to exercise trying to be healthy and you know touch wood like I've never felt you know with have these mental health issues again since but mm-hmm. a couple a couple buddies of mine that were at um university with me that 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 had like the same similar issues that mm-hmm. uh, they they started taking these antidepressants and they're still on it like 4 years later and I know another family member that's still on it 4 years later and I, this is the problem i have is it actually sort of like rehabilitating and helping you or is it just kind of just kind of masking the issue
1: Mm -hmm. I mean for sure I think that's another whole separate conversation about you know how many people do we prescribe antidepressants to and then how many people do we keep on antidepressants because they actually really do need that sustained kind of chemical help Um, and obviously it's not to say that you know if you're someone who is con- continues to be on antidepressants that that's in any way bad or that your depression is worse or better in any way it's more that i think yeah as a system we could do it with reevaluating why those decisions are made and if there are ways we can maybe get people off them because ultimately all of this i mean in terms of that it has so many knock-on effects in terms of the individual there's so many potential Um, worrying side effects where something like a quarter of everyone that is that takes antidepressants has to actually stop taking them because they have such severe side effects Um, and then you're kind of back to square one and then there's a whole separate issue of obviously prescribing and dishing out that many antidepressants will cost the NHS and the government a lot of money and are there ways we could spend that money better for example by you know. Building infrastructure that would allow people to exercise more so that fewer people would get depressed in the first place and things like that. I think there are so many important conversations to be had in this space.
0: Yeah, I mean, so, so that's kind of like the cure, if you like. So, so, so mentioning like the exercise as the prevention, mm-hmm. uh, which you just mentioned there. And I also think like the world's changed a lot recently. We mm-hmm. all have this tiny little perfect hd tv in our hands and we are always using social media mm-hmm. social media has a huge effect because you're seeing the highlight reels you're seeing that person's either month or you know mm-hmm. their year's highlight reels you know with their best angles spending their money on their holidays etc and when yeah. when when do we flick through instagram when we're kind of bored lying in bed on like a sunday or something so it 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 targets us at our weakest point. And like, for sure, that's going to have an effect. Have you watched the uh, The social dilemma on Netflix? I have, yes. And I was freaked out by it. (laughs) Crazy. Like when you realize what these companies are, you know, they are hiring uh, like kind of psychologists from your Stanford's and your Harvard's, the best universities in the world. And these are some of the most powerful, richest companies on earth that are using these algorithms that only a handful of people sort of understand how these algorithms work. You know, these data engineers and it just targets our weaknesses. Like and the, the, for sure, like there's got to be a correlation between the mental health kind of crisis, which I think we do have in the UK and, and the introduction of social media.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I think social media definitely isn't helping, <laughs> um, obviously. I think, in terms of the research evidence, what we can say is that there is a correlation between the amount of social media you consume and you use, and um, potentially having problems with attention or having poor mental health, things like that. We also know that there's this vicious loop of we tend to, like you said, we tend to reach for social media when we're already feeling a bit down or a bit bored or essentially are a bit susceptible to lower mood or feeling worse anyway and then you go on social media and then like you said you see all of those highlight reels and you know all of these kind of unattainable standards and obviously it depends what your feed is like but for a lot of people that is what the algorithm will suggest um and then that can make you feel even worse and then there's that spiral that you can just kind of keep keep going down and
0: yeah like even today I was sat in my office Mm -hmm. and this girl I used to be friends with from Bristol you know she's in Marseille on the beach and I I saw her story I was like god damn it like what am I doing here Uh,
1: yeah yeah I mean the thing is that that's the whole point of social media like I think the social dilemma is so powerful because it just reminds us all that that like that attention hacking and the you know basically keeping us hooked that's the point behind it because ultimately social media companies are businesses so they're not really concerned with people's well-being at the end of the day they're more concerned with how many ads they sell
0: Yeah, it's our attention, isn't it? That they harvest our attention. We use these free apps and they harvest and profit off our attention and causes us anxiety. Um,
1: Yeah, there was actually (laughs) a really good study done at um, some of my colleagues at, at Bath, which got people to stop using social media for one week, just one week, and they found that people felt happier and better even just after one week break from social media and when you think about it it makes complete sense but I think it's really powerful to see those kinds of findings and then see right what is my social media use like and you know am I using social media for the the right reasons or am I happy with it or are there things that I might want to consider changing.
0: Mm, I I read I read one study recently well Mm -hmm. sorry I read the the headline of a study and it was saying how people that post actively and are active users of social media so they post Mm -hmm. often and stuff are happier than those that Mm -hmm. never post that use it all the time
1: that's yes that's definitely um kind of an, an established finding it's it's not as straightforward as saying social media is bad or social media use is bad it's more how you use it and why so, like you said, people that are more active, that maybe talk to friends, they stay in touch with people or arrange you know social gatherings are actually happier and can be happier as as a result of being on social media. whereas if you know people that are more kind of yeah, passive users, not engaging as much, just kind of observing the the world that goes on on social media those are the people that tend to have poorer mental health as a result
0: yeah for sure I mean the the concept of social media is kind of bizarre because if we're in a job interview or if we're meeting somebody new mm. whoever says what's your hobby it's like oh Instagram like the, the amount of time we spend on it, it it's definitely a lot of people's hobbies yet yet no one actually mentions it as a hobby it's this weird thing in society that we we don't properly address.
1: No. And And it has fundamentally changed, you know, how we spend our days, how we use our time, how we stay in touch with people, how a lot of people now get news over social media. And when all of that is dictated by some algorithms that we don't really know that much about at the end of the day, that that's a massive effect on everyone's lives. So yeah, just just really worth I think being aware of. I mean I say that it's not like my social media use is perfect. You know I'm <laughs> I'm regularly kind of what's it the um when iPhone tells you like oh that's enough Instagram for today I'm regularly like yeah no just 15 more minutes. So I think <laughs> it you know it's hard. It's not like <laughs> just because I know some of the signs behind it behind it that doesn't make it any easier for me to not do it again because these things are fundamentally made to hack our attention so it's hard
0: yeah it, it certainly is hard um so, so what would your approach be like do, do you have like break days from social media how do you manage it
1: um I think I've my personal use of social media has kind of changed through the years so probably in my teens when social media was like you know just starting and stuff. Um, We didn't really know much about it, we didn't think about it that much because it was still so new. I think we just kind of used it but because it was so new there wasn't as much content, the algorithms weren't yet so like honed so maybe it was just easier to just you know genuinely stay in touch with your friends rather than get ads all the time or stuff like that. Um, And then I think it was during my undergrad that I started kind of evaluating, you know, is this making me happy? Um, Mostly because I think I noticed that the days when I tend to be the happiest or have the most fun are days when I'm not on social media much, if at all. And I think it's from noticing that kind of correlation of I'm happier when I'm out and about doing things and seeing people and not sat on social media um, I think that has made me kind of reevaluate how and why I use it so I will try and have occasional breaks from it I don't think I structure it as much as to say kind of you know this is now a week without social media but I definitely notice when I've been on it you know for too long or like if I've had a day when I'm on it quite a bit then I might just try and really then a bit before it gets out of control.
0: Yeah no that that makes sense. Um, when we we're talking over emo you mentioned eco-anxiety. Has this come into any of your research?
1: So I haven't looked at eco-anxiety specifically myself but I've got colleagues in the department here that are looking at that and eco-anxiety essentially it's quite a new term so there's not a whole lot of research on it just yet, but it is essentially, it refers to being worried, anxious, stressed about the prospect of the ongoing climate crisis that a lot of people are feeling. And it doesn't necessarily have to be to a clinical extent, like you know, an anxiety disorder would be. Um, and actually, I think we find that quite a lot of people feel it, particularly people of our generation and younger, because we've grown up with the looming crisis and now ongoing crisis. Um, so I don't research it myself, but I'm familiar with some of the research on it. And I definitely think it's a very valid construct. I, I experience it myself most days.
0: Most days. Uh, you, need to, you need to stop reading the news. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, that's one of the things, actually. The, reading the news doesn't help a whole lot um, because... There's constantly new headlines. I mean, just in the last few days, we've had, you know, the more heat waves in Europe and more wildfires and everything. And it, I think, it does add to just like an underlying sense of of worry that, that a lot of people are experiencing now.
0: For sure. I mean, I'm probably going to add to your uh, climate anxiety here. But last year in Europe, they had the worst droughts in 400 years.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, the amount of stats and dramatic headlines like that that came out just in the last few years is is insane. I mean, we keep breaking records for highest temperatures. And yeah, what just before COVID broke out, we all essentially watched Australia burn. And since then, you know, there's been really bad wildfires in, in California and even in Canada, like places mm-hmm. where you necessarily expect them.
0: So, yeah. do, you, do, you want to, do you want to know something wild about the wildfires? Uh, no, no, no pun no. intended there. But so Jade, if you could Google this, if you haven't, if you're still with us. So in Australia, uh, uh, in Russia, sorry, in Russia, round about the same time that these wildfires were happening in Australia, Russia had these wildfires, which were way bigger, like enormous. Jade, Google uh, Indian and US satellites uh, pick up huge Russian wildfires, something like that. It's estimated that the fires burnt through 20.9 million hectares of Russian land and 10 million hectares of Russian forest. Wow. Which is pretty crazy. But it was the uh, uh, US and Indian satellites picked it up. Because the Russians just didn't tell their population. <laughs> mm. I mean, mad. Yeah, it is pretty mad. Which um, I think. So back to your research. Um, it says um, uh, you know you, you become prime minister, and you you, you know you're in control of uh, British policy towards mental health. What would you know? What would you do? How how would it go?
1: Oh, that's a great question. Well, I've not fully thought through my strategy, but one of the things I would definitely do is emphasise prevention more, particularly prevention through lifestyle, because we know that so many of the biggest killers today or the biggest, you know, causes for disability and time off work and loss of productivity are things like depression and then closely followed by things like cardiovascular disease so if you can get people to be generally healthier in terms of how much they move what they eat how much they work at the end of the day um, you can do a lot to prevent those things from happening in the first place so i think some of the things i would i'd be keen to see and that actually already exist in some countries um, are things like outdoor gyms that anyone can use and access for example that's really common in sweden they've just got them out and about for everyone to use and they are paid for by the government or local authorities but everyone gets to benefit and then everyone in return looks after them so that they don't immediately get destroyed for example and need to be fenced off and then people can't access them anymore so that would be something i would definitely be keen to, to be more
0: on top of um yeah the, those those nordic countries they really have their shit together in terms of quality of life and exactly. their societies they're just so well planned out the, the, they the are it's in um in france like in the south of france they have these uh, mm-hmm. outdoor sort of public gym things as well mm-hmm. quite a lot and yeah. yeah like what you said the the cardiovascular the stats people don't people that don't realize cardiovascular disease uh heart disease essentially it kills a crazy number of people in the uk every year crazy and they think it's it, the majority of it's preventable i think yeah, it's something like sure. a people or something <clears throat> jade if you could try find that but yeah we do need more sort of cultural awareness of things like this
1: so yeah so i think you know obviously you won't ever prevent all of the cases um nor we yeah actually more than 150 yeah look at that
0: um Mm. I think that's in the United States that says the most common type of heart disease killing 380,000 people yeah in the UK here we go 160,000 deaths each year is from heart disease which is kind of crazy
1: and I mean there are so many conditions that are actually not strictly speaking heart disease but that correlate with that a lot so you know there's things like type 2 diabetes that is associated with um a less healthy lifestyle um and even some other things like you know some of dementia alzheimer's so many of kind of chronic conditions can be either prevented or at least kept at bay or made better by a healthy lifestyle and i think at the moment that is missing from our kind of overall approach to health and public health um, so that that would be something that I'd definitely be be keen to to talk about more, to educate on more because the first step towards anything is educating people better and then also supporting them in trying to do those things and follow through. Um, so, I mean, that goes for things like exercising nutrition, for things like mindfulness, you know putting that on people's radar so that they know it exists so that it, they know how beneficial it can be and where to find it, where to start with it. Um, whereas currently that's that's just nowhere near it's not part of the plan, really.
0: Yeah, which is a shame because it should be. So let's talk about the uh, the app you're involved with one, right?
1: Yes, so throughout my PhD, um, I've been working with an, a mindfulness foundation They're called Medito, and they're essentially a not-for-profit version of headspace. Um, they are uh, the their main thing is a mindfulness app that has a whole lot of mindfulness um, audio guides, much like you would find in, in things like Calm and Headspace. And it's all free. It's all led by volunteers, and I worked with them as a re- their research officer to do some work, basically evaluate um, some of their existing content and then also create that um, sessions on they are specifically targeting exercise and helping people get into exercise. And those haven't been released yet, but they will be um, in autumn.
0: Uh, Okay, and what kind of uh, user numbers does the app currently have? Do you know?
1: The latest latest figures I got were probably from early this year when they, I think, passed a couple million downloads and had like a few hundred thousand regular users. So, you know, not quite up there with with things that have been around for, for a really long time and also are all paywalled, but it's decent. It's making a really big change in a lot of people's lives. So, yeah, really happy to be working with them.
0: Yeah, that sounds brilliant. I mean, that's that's impacting culture in a pretty big way. Uh, so are they, is it UK-based predominantly?
1: So they are officially based in the Netherlands, but some of the team are in the UK as well um I've worked with people based all over um yes some of the UK team some some based in the Netherlands some based in the US they're, they're a really kind of international digital organization
0: ah uh, very good i mean so, so if you think you say maybe it's got 2 million users and maybe like one in four people or, or half of those users to tell somebody or tell some family members about it. Like that's a pretty big reach. So it's, it's definitely yeah. impacting culture for sure.
1: It, it is. And I mean, it, to think that that's all come from, essentially, it started as a group of volunteers being not happy with the way a lot of the currently available mental health tools are actually put behind a paywall um so I mean that's where the idea comes from and obviously you get why paywalls exist because ultimately if you want to keep a business going if you want to keep growing it you know a lot of the time there will have to be a paywall somewhere it happens even with like academic research stuff like that but it's yeah I I think it's a great effort and you know every single person it helps that's a person that otherwise would not would not have gotten that help so that's pretty great
0: Mm -hmm. so does it what does it do does it does it personalize to the user and recommend sort of like types of exercise you can do
1: so the current stuff on medito is mostly mindfulness meditation it's kind of audio audio guides that basically take you through mindfulness um the whereas the sessions we are going to release in autumn they'll be targeting exercise more specifically and they'll be talking about a bunch of things kind of talking about those psychological hurdles I talked about earlier that you need to overcome in order to even get into an exercise habit so that'll be things like you know getting motivated or kind of how do you overcome setbacks or how do you even notice how something has made you feel for example how doing an exercise session has made you feel or hasn't made you feel Um, so things like that and then you can apply that. We've kept it quite broad purposefully because we don't want to kind of prescribe exercise to people because that can be quite limiting in the way that obviously not everyone enjoys the same thing. Not everyone has access to the same kind of exercise facilities or, you know, even saying go for a walk in your local park. You can't really say that because not everyone is going to have a local park. Um, so, yeah, we've we've tried to keep it really friendly to all sorts of different levels, activity levels, mindfulness, meditation levels, um, but also kind of, you know, abilities in terms of, um, of fitness or like disability friendly, all of that.
0: Mm. So I could keep a, a wide scope across different demographics. She didn't yeah. want some like 75 year old woman that's just downloaded the app and it's telling her to like go for a six mile run or something, yeah. what, you know, do, give, give me 200 press ups.
1: Exactly, exactly. S- you do need to keep it quite broad
0: so it sends you notifications like every day does it
1: um it can do it's it's optional because in my own research i found that a lot of people get a bit bored or a bit annoyed with constant like pinging of notifications so you can personalize whether you get some reminders from it or not
0: yeah I find it kind of creeps me out so like my best friend Akil, shout out Akil if you're listening, so last year I was living with him and we had a balcony and he had this uh, Apple watch and okay. he just randomly we're watching tv at night time he gets up and goes out on the balcony I was like what are you doing? He was like oh my Apple watch told me I need to get some fresh air I was like what? <laughs> like you, uh, you listen to that thing? So it kind of creeps me out of it when technology is trying to tell us what to do in that regard.
1: Uh-huh. Yeah I mean again what we find from research is that it's really important for users for people to have a say in what recommendations they're getting what activities they're doing because ultimately if you're prescribed something whether that's a pill or an exercise program or a diet you'll only stick to that as long as you're really motivated and then once that's done what do you do whereas instead if you start building on what do I actually enjoy what you know, is realistic for me to keep going, then that's just so much easier to maintain and ultimately will make you feel better because you've enjoyed it along the way rather than just done it for the outcomes.
0: Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about sort of policy, like government policy Mm -hmm. and and how this relates, because one of the things I found frustrating when my undergrad, when I was studying criminology, it's like, The the, the research is overwhelmingly pointing in one direction, for example, how short prison sentences are totally ineffective. So you get all these academics that, you know, some of the elite academics that go on to become, you know, advise the civil servants and advise the government. Mm. And then, you know, it's perfectly within the politician's power just to ignore this research. But but, then at the same time, it's like, you know it's the politicians that have been elected who do still make the decisions so in in this area do you find that and
1: I I do think there's yes (laughs) I mean there's often hurdles when it comes to trying to translate policy into research and I know that in the UK system itself you know there are so many people and like great academics working in policy spaces but ultimately, their work only goes as far as, like, the politicians allow it to go, um, and it will ultimately be down to governments what they actually implement, um, and how much they listen to those academics. So, I think, coming back to kind of talking about, you know, how we can maybe use exercise more as a preventative strategy, or even as a treatment sometimes, there is really good evidence how for how exercise can actually help prevent or treat depression anxiety stress disorders all of those things and yet we are yet to see that become policy in in any meaningful way
0: yeah i I don't think it helps that like especially boris like he's kind of fat a lot of these politicians clearly if they are exercising like that they don't appear to be either exercising a lot or actually particularly looking after their physical health as much as perhaps they should.
1: Yeah I mean leading by example would be a great way for them to go but I think that that would require them to be to have that as a personal priority as well and we just don't know if that's the case because ultimately we haven't seen that much
0: of it. Yeah for sure so I uh, are there any particular studies or bits of research that you've read about the effects on exercise with depression and stuff that really stand out? Like any fact, you remember?
1: Yes. So um, there's actually a really, really big piece of work that came out earlier this year mm-hmm. um, that essentially reviewed all of the literature we have on how exercise can be used to prevent. Um, no, sorry, to treat um. Depression, anxiety, and stress. Uh, it was done by a team at the University of Southern California, uh, sorry, uh, Southern Australia, that mm-hmm. actually met some of them at a conference I went to recently. So they're oh, all, wow. yeah, great people. Um, but they did this massive, massive piece of work that looked at tens of thousands of papers um, or like sifted through them to then end up with, I think, about a thousand studies. Um, And basically what they concluded was that exercise really meaningfully and reliably reduces depression. Um, So it can be used to help people not feel depressed or not get depressed in the first place. And actually that study got a lot of press coverage because what they found was that the effects we see from exercise can be as much as one and a half times the effects we can see from antidepressants. And that's that's a ridic- like a wild finding. And I think rightfully it was covered quite a lot in the media. Mm-hmm. So it's it's Dr. Ben Singh was the lead author. Yeah, that South Australia. That that's about that paper, I believe.
0: Mm. University of South Australia researchers are calling for exercise to be a mainstay approach for managing depression, as a new study shows that physical activity is 1.5 times more effective than counselling or the leading medications, which presumably like SSRIs and antidepressants. That's that's pretty incredible, isn't it?
1: Incredible. Yeah, absolutely incredible. And, you know, this research is not like this particular piece of work is new in that is synthesized everything that was already out there. But the research is made up of was already out there. So it's not really that new. And anyone that's been working in this field isn't that surprised. But I'm really glad that this study was done so that now we have a really comprehensive piece of work that you know we can point to and say, actually, look at the strength of this evidence. Is that not kind of Reason enough for us to maybe reconsider how much we include exercise into the treatment and prevention of mental health conditions
0: yeah, one point five times more effective than taking antidepressants yet you have none of the sort of health risks you're not taking this uh pill that you know affect uh, that manipulates the chemicals in your brain essentially it, it is it's it astounding it, isn't side
1: it side effects because there's those all of the spillover effects from exercise things that you know better physical health better fitness it can reduce rates of cardiovascular disease so it's not only that you're avoiding negative side effects it's that you are actively adding positive side effects on it so yeah i think watch this space
0: yeah for sure i mean linking back to the policy and even when i was saying about how my gp never asked me once um do i exercise you know am i eating well And I feel like, like you said, they only have on average four minutes per patient. They haven't got time to, you know, analyze your entire lifestyle and establish Mm -hmm. this really, do they?
1: Yeah. And sometimes they're also not sufficiently trained. So a colleague of mine at Bath is looking at how and why GPs in particular are or aren't prescribing exercise for the treatment of depression. And what comes up time and time again is that um one they don't have the time and capacity we've which you've just mentioned and then two that maybe when they went to school the gps the evidence wasn't as strong and then they don't necessarily get kind of updated training on this is where the evidence is at now you know so things some things do change in terms of treatment recommendations like the nice guidelines um national institute for health and um, clinical excellence that release kind of, you know, how generally we should be treating things. So they might, they might change their guidelines, but if GPs aren't made aware of it, or if they don't have the time to, you know, train themselves up, essentially, they're just not going to be up to speed with those things. So that can be a factor as well.
0: Mm, absolutely and it's it's wherein it's that link isn't it which does just come back to policy between the new research and process changes in our healthcare system to implement that
1: absolutely and I mean you know you you, you can understand why it would take a few years for research to be implemented into practice because in order for something to become policy you do want really strong evidence. You're not just going to change policy on a whim or, you know, based on a couple of studies, but I do still think there's a, a a big gap between, oh, there's a a couple of studies and kind of the the wealth of the evidence that we've got now that really could warrant some policy changes.
0: Yeah, and you have to think, even if it's not policy, even if it's just sort of societal change and society awareness, <laughs> there's for sure a time delay which in part I think you know people wait till they hear about in the news Mm -hmm. Um, yeah
1: yeah and and that's why as researchers we're actually actively looking to you know communicate with news organizations to get new research out there because that sometimes helps that process it speeds it up if you can get research that's just come out or that you know research that is, is emerging and take that communicate to the people better so that you don't have to wait for research to change policy and then for the people to learn about policy you kind of just go straight to people and that can help shorten that um that period as well
0: yeah like even how we're talking now it's a much more uh direct route to uh the people although i'll be honest um i do have a slightly smaller audience than the times or the bbc but yeah like th- th- these independent uh kind of sources so like I like listening to podcasts when you have these professors and they're talking about some of these issues and then sometimes you see it on the news like two years later but yeah it's like it's a good opportunity I think you know yeah. it's one of the benefits of uh, technology these days it takes down That's one not. of the barriers of access to information
1: yeah and like I said I mean that there is a big push within academia to just talk about our research more like not that everyone in our lives isn't sick of hearing about it yet but in terms of you know disseminating research in in ways that is easier to understand that is more tangible so that you know anyone listening to what a piece of research is about can actually understand what they did and what they found and why that's relevant to them that we are trying to do that more but again there's all sorts of pressures that sometimes come between the best of intentions and what actually happens.
0: For sure. On that point, there's a real problem, I think, like, I, I've done a master's, but, you know, I've by no means read the amount of academic literature that you have. And it always strikes me at how complicated some of these papers are to read with the mm-hmm. use of the academic language and all this uh, industry jargon. Like, mm-hmm. it is pretty tricky, but I suppose it's a fine balance, isn't it, between, you know, representing your research and uh, and speaking about it. And then, you know, the, the sort of technicalities of, a, of an actual paper mm-hmm. and the peer reviewed process.
1: Yes that's for sure that's one of the main barriers i think that keeps science and scientific findings from benefiting people more broadly is that academia in itself is like is a really complicated system that is has been quite rigid for a while and scientific language is part of it and while we certainly need specific and accurate academic language in order to be you know to be precise about what what am i talking about if i say exercise helps mental health that is way too broad to be an academic statement i'd have to say something along the lines of running at moderate intensity for 30 minutes three times a week helps improve symptoms of depression on this particular depression scale in a sample of I don't know, university students with a mean age of 22 years. So that's a really big difference. And we do need to make an effort to bridge that gap because obviously there are ways we can communicate all of that information or at least in, in good enough ways communicate it in ways that is more accessible to, to understand the to people that don't work in academia.
0: Mm. Well, I think that's one of the benefits of this uh, Australian study. It's mm-hmm. the quantity. What is it? A, I think it said 120,000 or so participants that have yeah. been collectively studied uh, throughout mm-hmm. all of the studies that they were studying.
1: Yeah, that's very <laughs>
0: Yeah it's it's having that so, so with your research um w- what type of just for university of bath what's the sort of budget and f- for this type of research like just mindfulness in general with the university of bath do you know
1: oh that's really hard to quantify so funding within academia works in a number of different ways so for example most commonly people will be funded by research grants so Mm -hmm. they'll put together a research proposal apply to a, a research body like the uk research and innovation ukri they're like a really big um funder of science in the uk and then if your grant is good enough and if you're lucky because oftentimes it's not just down to who's good enough there's just so many good ideas out there but if you get the grant funded that then covers your time as a researcher so like your employment sometimes um particularly when you're at PhD stage like myself um and it then covers the costs of any studies you've got planned for that grant so it will really depend what you know what you apply for but it can be it, it can vary so much it's really hard to say because it literally goes from like I don't know, most PhD students will have a research budget of about a grand per year. So a £1,000 per year, which maybe sounds like a lot. But when you think about you should be paying participants at least £10 an hour, if not more. Um, mm. And things like, you know, all of the cost associated with running a study. That's really not that much.
0: No, um, I, I thought it was a tiny amount of money, to be honest.
1: Well, yeah, but then with, if you go to, you know, bigger research grants that mostly more senior academics like professors, associate professors tend to get, that can go in the millions. So it really depends on the project and it's really hard to say.
0: Uh, okay, yeah. Jade, Google, how um, how much y- British universities spend on research grants or, or or win in terms of research grants every year? Mm.
1: It'd be interesting to... to look at. There's also part of the problem with the system is that the universities that are more successful with getting grant money then get further money from um from the government. So there's a system called the ref and that's like all the rage when it comes to getting research funding and stuff.
0: Mm-hmm. This one here, Research England, £8 billion investment in England universities. Scroll down a little bit. Mm -hmm. In the financial year 2021 to 2022, the University of Oxford's total research income, including QR funding, I'm not sure what that is, totaled £851 million. Mm -hmm. Of this, £710 million was granted externally from funds and funded grants and contracts
1: yeah and oxford are probably one of the big big spenders in this field because they tend to have really really good researchers and people that are successfully getting grants so that that'll be kind of towards the top of the range but that's you know that's a whole university a large university whereas when you break that down to all the individual people it it won't work out to quite as much per
0: person. Yeah, for sure. And like, yeah, they are, you know, one of the most dominant universities in the world. So you could safely say that that's probably at the upper end of the sort of grants universities are winning every year. Um, I think to finish off, then we could talk a little bit about psychedelic research. I mean, again, it's been making the media a little bit recently, uh, the benefits of uh, psilocybin, and psilocybin is found in uh, psychedelic drugs, uh, LSD, but also uh, magic mushrooms, which is what I believe a lot of the therapies based on, the the mushrooms.
1: Yeah, so just to preempt all of that discussion with, I'm not a psychedelics researcher. Um, I don't, you know, have expertise in the specific area, but I know broadly about the research that goes on and, and what the research is found um, and another caveat is that all of these components so so psilocybin um, LSD MDMA um, I think have been studied the most in psychedelics research but all of those are very much illegal in the UK they're all class A drugs so absolutely not you know endorsing this for kind of personal use or anything um, and all of the research that is done is done in very controlled settings but With that caveat out the way. um, There's been some really exciting research coming out of um, kind of psychedelic assisted therapy. Um, And particularly there's been some exciting work in the area of treatment-resistant depression. So that would be people who have tried multiple antidepressants, um, maybe some other types of treatments, a lot of you know psychotherapy, but they just can't seem to get out of that. Cycle of depression. But also, psychedelics have been shown to help people with PTSD. Um, So, some pretty severe forms of of post traumatic stress disorder. And also, some good evidence has come out in the space of addiction. So, where people, disorders where people operate in kind of like a really negative loop or kind of established patterns. Mm -hmm. And psychedelics in some of the research that has come out have been, have had incredible success rates with, um, you know, reducing symptoms of depression in people that have been depressed for years or decades, um, or allowing people to, to break the cycle of addiction, for example. And the reason, what we think is the reason for those findings and that potential is that psychedelics work on the brain. So, um, psilocybin and mdma i i believe are chemically quite similar to serotonin which is a mm-hmm. transmitter that we've all got in the brain that does all sorts of things for us um and but they mimic just a part of what serotonin does so they only to like specific receptors and what that does is it makes different regions of the brain talk to each other more and better mm-hmm. so connect regions of the brain that normally don't necessarily talk to each other and it will create new neural pathways mm-hmm. can basically help people form new new literally new connections in the brain mm-hmm. so new kind of ways of thinking about things and yeah or new ways of behaving uh,
0: the, these new neural pathways that they can form isn't this linked back to the neuroplasticity again
1: yes Yes, because
0: exactly. I feel like so it says here that the average person has between twelve thousand and sixty thousand of thoughts per day. Mm-hmm. So these depressed people, if you're, you know, always having negative thoughts, you know, and they're just repeating themselves in your head, you know, time after time, like forty or fifty thousand times in a day. then it's you know that that's the kind of the depression so 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 these these substances like the psilocybin that does kind of give you the ability with the neuroplasticity to change your thought patterns I presume that's sort of like the sort of lines in which they operate on a little bit isn't it
1: yes so that, that that is the current hypothesis obviously we'll need lots more work in this space um and again all of the research that we have so far has looked at this in a very controlled setting with substances that are very rigorously controlled, they are mostly lab created. So um, the psilocybin they use in a lot of studies is actually um, chemically synthesized as well. Some studies also use actual mushrooms but mostly it's lab synthesized so that they can control the exact amount and obviously you know they are very careful about the purity of all of these components and stuff. So it's really very different to, you know, any kind of personal use of these things that, like I said, is very much illegal, at least at mm. the time
0: of speaking. I mean, you've you've got to give it to them, though. The, those hippies in the US in like the 60s and 70s, with the meditation and the psychedelics, they were, they were pretty <laughs> much spot on, weren't they? They were very they, future thinking.
1: <laughs> they were ahead of their time, for sure. And actually, what a lot of people don't know is that, back then, a lot of research in psychedelic assisted therapy already started. So Mm -hmm. in the late 60s and 70s, there was a lot of research where psychiatrists were already seeing some of the potential of psychedelics. But with some of the um, US politics and and policy Mm -hmm. on kind of, you know, cracking down on drugs and the war on drugs and all of that, Mm-hmm. There was a very concentrated push to to outlaw all of that, which essentially just stopped research in its tracks um, and just, you know, paused the field for what, about 50 years? Yeah. And we've only just come back or are coming back to um, continuing that research so that hopefully we can benefit from or that the people that need it most can benefit from um, psychedelic assisted therapy if it's found that, you know, it, it's safe enough and ineffective enough. But yeah. I think what we'll see happen in this space is some countries have already um, started decriminalising. So I believe Australia recently made a big step in um,
0: mm-hmm. it, the therapy. Yeah, I've seen that.
1: Yeah. Um So that's one of the first ones that's really said, OK, we are, you know, giving psychedelic assisted therapy at Least for research purposes, a go, and I think we'll probably see some of that in the UK as well. Um, there's a clinic in Bristol actually that, um,
0: mm-hmm. I think
1: are doing research with psychedelic assisted therapy. So, I,
0: I think they're doing ketamine therapy as well.
1: They might be, yeah, yeah. Um, and I think over time, as we accumulate more research, hopefully, we'll start seeing clinical training specific to psychedelic assisted therapy so for example at the moment you can train as a clinical therapist in cognitive behavioral therapy or in mindfulness-based stress reduction that are like different forms of therapies essentially but over time I suspect we'll start seeing clinical training for psychologists and psychiatrists to be prescribing and using psychedelics in their practice
0: yeah. And I think the fact that like, so back then in like the, the 70s, the the US were very influential in a lot of Western countries mm-hmm. with this drug policy. Because so I did a little bit in my undergrad about drugs, crime and society. Okay. And they sort of ha- it sort of had that effect on a lot of a lot of uh, Western countries. But the fact that the US, you know, that big ship is starting to turn its course. Mm-hmm. Oregon, uh, magic mushrooms have been decriminalised. And hopefully the sort of the UK uh, follows suit and that will just enable researchers, f- make it far more easy for them to sort of gain these grants and research. And because I, I really believe from like the documentaries I've watched that mm. it has great, you know, it's got great potential, the uh, psilocybin. And it really doesn't make sense. So in the UK, magic mushrooms is a class A Uh, as a harmful substance which gives it this class a but it's it's actually one of the least harmful substances on like the actual effect on your body so yeah
1: yeah so that there's very little evidence for um what we'd call toxicity or neurotoxicity so a lot of the research as well has incredibly low rates of you know negative side effects and stuff again that is all done in controlled environments, controlled doses, um, pure substances, but in general there's not really a good case to be made for psychedelics as substances to be harmful and actually a lot of the um, the really potent and kind of you know well-known myths around psychedelics were spread by those policymakers and and politicians that were really keen to stop their use in research um, and in practice as well.
0: Yeah I mean it's a shame it's happened but you know Australia, the US, I think the tide's turning and Mm -hmm. you know hopefully we could see a lot more of this research in the future and on Mm -hmm. that note I think we could come to an end if that's okay with you.
1: Yeah absolutely.
0: Well Thank you very much, and good luck with your PhD as well. Yeah, thank you again for having me on. It's been great to chat. Thanks for listening, guys. Uh, Cheers.
1: The Many Things Podcast.